Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan and as always I will be your host for this episode. And we have only two episodes after this one before our Crime Con break, but we will also be launching our True Blue Crime Investigates podcast during the month of September. The podcast will cover unsolved crimes and we will break down the crime, the victim, the evidence, the suspect or suspects, and the theories involved in each case. So stay tuned in the coming weeks for new episodes of True Blue Crime Investigates. If you'd like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, and including the new True Blue Crime Investigates podcast, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. And if you'd like to email the host directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. If you can, please support the show via Patreon or PayPal. Links to make donations are on the website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. Any donation level helps, and it'll help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout-out in a future podcast, a thank-you message from the host, and some cool True Blue Crime merch. And for no cost whatsoever, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to it on. Thanks so much. Without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. The state of Hawaii's human occupation is believed to have occurred around a thousand years ago when Polynesian sea explorers discovered the chain of 137 volcanic islands in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Various other Southeast Asian explorers were believed to have located and settled the islands at various times, and the first verified contact with Europeans occurred when Captain James Cook of England wrote of the islands and their inhabitants during a voyage of the Pacific Ocean in 1778. During Cook's second visit to the island, a local tribe took offense to some of Cook's men tearing down a fence and idol for firewood, and retaliated by stealing one of his smaller boats. Cook ordered his men to capture the tribal chief, known as the King of Hawaii Island, to be held for ransom. Instead of paying a ransom, the tribe attacked and were able to kill Captain Cook and several of his men while the rest of his crew fled to the ships and left Hawaii. While Cook had failed to establish any form of claim to Hawaii like he did for Australia and New Zealand, word of his discovery put Hawaii on the map, and during the 1800s it was a popular stopping point for ships headed across the Pacific Ocean. In the late 1800s, white settlers overthrew the chief king structure of the tribe and established a constitution with voting rights for property owners. This disenfranchised many of the native residents as they didn't own land. Asian immigrants from countries such as Korea were also not allowed to vote. This led to the eventual annexation of Hawaii as a U.S. territory. Hawaii served as a major military stronghold during World War II, and despite the U.S. Navy sustaining heavy losses during the surprise attack on Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941, it was able to rally and defeat the Japanese Navy during the following years. Roughly 18 years after the day that will live in infamy, Hawaii became the last state admitted to the Union. After gaining statehood, Hawaii became a haven for investors who built large resorts and established a tourism industry that still thrives today. All industries require support, and tourism is no different. In the 1990s, the Xerox Corporation, known mainly for copier machines, had a warehouse in Honolulu that supplied copier machines and technicians for the area. One of those technicians would commit an act of workplace violence unseen in Hawaii's history. This is the story of the Xerox Massacre. 
Byron Koji Yusugi was born in 1959 in Honolulu, Hawaii. While not much is known about his childhood, it was said that he had an affinity for guns from a young age and was a member of his high school's rifle team via JROTC. Classmates described him as a quiet teenager who didn't cause much trouble. After graduating high school in 1977, he was involved in a car crash where he sustained a serious head injury. His family stated he was never the same person after the accident. We are going to talk about this later in this episode, kind of focus more on this head injury, but this does give us a chance to step back. A lot of true crime can be separated into different categories when it comes to homicides. You have your serial killers, and those are usually classified as somebody who commits two or more murders with a cooling off period in between. And then you have spree killers where they are committing homicides and then there's a break, but it's not necessarily a cooling down period. So an example of the serial killer we covered would be a guy like Robert Baker. He's He killed over 20 women over the course of a few years. There may be weeks to months in, in between murders, but it's a cooling down period and he really doesn't stop until he gets caught. Whereas what we just covered in Andrew Cananen would be considered a spree killer. He's, he's killing usually out of a necessity to, in that case, to obtain money or vehicles. He's committing a, a rash of murders within a short amount of time. And it's, it's not, and again, it's usually not something that's a psychological need to kill. It's usually a, a snapping point situation where they'll conduct a whole bunch of murders in a short amount of time until they're stopped. And then you have what they consider the mass murderers, the, the single event, somebody goes in and, and kills as many people as they can in a singular event until they either surrender or are shot and killed or take their own life. And as we've talked about, serial killers usually have a pretty unique background when it comes to witness trauma as children. Oftentimes we see the, the parts of the McDonald Triangle in their past, the bedwetting, the arson, the cruelty to small animals. So it's sometimes easier to break down or look at the childhood of, say, a serial killer than it does a spree killer or a mass murderer. Because spree killers and mass murderers, oftentimes, again, it's, it's a singular breaking incident or, or at least a build-up to a breaking point, and then it's a whole lot of violence in a very small amount of time. And there's not the same buildup that you see with serial killers. You don't see an involvement of their crimes. A lot of them, in fact, don't have criminal backgrounds, especially not violent criminal backgrounds. So when you look at the childhood, a lot of the times you'll see in, in cases where somebody just snaps and commits an act of workplace violence or a spree killing, they'll go and talk to neighbors or classmates and say, well, he, was, he or she was a normal person never had an issue with them they seem like every other person that you knew friendly they had family whatever it might be whereas with your serial killers there's a lot of the times because there's a underlying social issue there or some severe long-term mental illness you'll see people that will say something wasn't right with that person we've known for a long time ever since that person was a child they're just 
was an evil around them or a darkness or you just got a creepy feeling when you're around that person. Now Byron's kind of in the middle here. He's He's got this head injury and then he's going to show a lot of antisocial behavior uh, related to some documented mental illness that he has. So he's kind of that more of the ticking time bomb that he's not committing small acts of violence against people as time passes, but the the hatred, the anger, the propensity for violence is growing over time in him. And like I said, we'll we'll break it down later. It's a lot of this is broken down kind of during his trial or after his trial. So we'll get more into it. But just as we go through here, it's 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 very interesting because I think for that reason, a lot of the times serial killers will have these extensive reports about their background, about them growing up, and it's been dissected by psychologists over the years looking at guys like Ted Bundy and Jeffrey Dahmer and John Wayne Gacy. They'll they'll dig into every aspect of their past, find every little bit of their childhood that might explain why they turned out the way they did, whereas with either these spree killers or these mass murderers, they kind of focus more on the breaking point, the the one issue that drove them over the edge. So I just wanted to bring that up, that that's one of the differences I see when I'm researching the two different types of cases. But back to the story here, aside from guns, Byron's main hobby was breeding and raising goldfish and koi. He would then sell the fish to local pet shops for extra income. And in 1984, he was hired by the Xerox Corporation as a repair technician. His time with Xerox was said to be extremely troubled. He had troubles fitting in with his work groups and was ostracized by members of his group due to his anger and negativity. This caused him to become even more isolated and angry, which exasperated the workplace issues. So we do see this cycle in many cases where, whether it's due to mental illness or just everybody has that person they either went to school with or work with that is that extremely negative person that is always angry about everything. The, the extreme pessimist that nothing can go right, the Eeyore personality. Uh, as we used to say at my old job, you have a couple Eeyores in, in every workplace. And it's difficult to be around these types of people. They, they tend to bring other people down with their negativity. Even if you come in with a great mood, something great happened, you had a, a fun night out with friends, uh, your kid got the winning home run in a baseball game, whatever it might be the night before you come to work and you're just all excited and you can take on the world and then this this person comes up, this Eeyore personality, and just drags you right down and everything is the end of the world and the corporate's out to get everybody, whatever it might be. So eventually people will move away from this person because they get sick of getting drugged down and, and feeling this way so they'll avoid them. They won't strike up conversations with them they won't sit with them at lunch whatever it might be so then this person becomes even more isolated and angry and now that they think it's not just corporate it's their co-workers that are out to get them and it's definitely what's going on with byron here and in 1988 his mother passed away and byron complained to his father about a poking sensation he had in his head and it's unknown if he ever sought any medical evaluation or treatment for the condition and his father would say that 
ever since starting work at Xerox, his son was a different person, but everybody else said it was after that car accident that he became a different person. And I don't know if that's the difference where during that time period after high school and before you start your first job, a lot of adult children will kind of distance uh, from their friends in high school, they'll distance from their family, so they're, they're kind of figuring out their life per se. So maybe it's a situation where his father just didn't see him as much or he wasn't communicating with his father as much, whereas he was communicating with his brother and his brother saw the change immediately and his father didn't see it till he started working for Xerox in 1984. But what we do know is that by 1988, when his mother passed away, he's complaining of this poking sensation. He's not getting along with people at work. He's, according to everybody, his attitude and his behaviors have changed. He's always angry. And this is going to cause issues at work that continue into the early 90s. And in 1993, he got so angry that he kicked in an elevator door, damaging it severely. He was arrested for third-degree criminal destruction of property and ordered by the judge to attend anger management counseling. And this is another thing I don't think we've talked about. A lot of people might not always understand the degrees associated with crimes. You'll hear things like first degree, second degree, third degree. Um, in Minnesota, some of the statutes go all the way down to fifth degrees, just depending on what the crime is. And a lot of people understand first degree murder. That's in almost all situations, a premeditated murder with intent. And second, depending on which state you live in, you can have second degree murder where it's more of a crime of passion. Some states have a third degree murder where it's due to mental illness or a seriously depraved mind situation. And in the case of criminal destruction of property, statutes, if you've ever tried to look at them, can be kind of confusing. But in Minnesota, there's two aggravating factors to criminal destruction. One is actually based on the cost to repair or replace the item. So if you smash somebody's $50 cell phone, you could be looking at a much lower degree of criminal destruction. But if you smash somebody's brand new iPhone that's worth $1,500, you could be looking at a, a maximum degree of criminal destruction. You're, you're destroying, in both cases, you're destroying a cell phone it just depends on the value of replacing that that item. And in Minnesota, there's also increased penalties or higher degrees if somebody is potentially going to be injured. So in the case of if somebody's car is parked in the driveway and you throw a brick through the window of it and nobody's in that car, it's the cost to replace the window. However, if somebody's sitting in the driver's seat of the car and you throw a brick or a rock through the window and knowing that it could strike or cause injury to that person, it can jump it all the way up to a first degree uh, criminal destruction, even if it doesn't cost that much to replace the window. So again, just a small lesson in the degrees. Every crime, for the most part, has them. Burglary is another great one where first degree burglary is a occupied residence. So if you break into somebody's house in the middle of the night, that's a first degree burglary. And then depending on occupation status depending on if it's a business or residential you can have second degree third degree burglaries and it's not always the case where the crime itself is all that different it's just the the different stipulations and then the higher the level or in this case a lower i guess three is lower technically than one in terms of of degree uh the the first degrees will always come with the greatest penalties, whether it be prison time or fines or whatever it might be. So 
he's arrested. He's done enough damage to this elevator door that it's that it costs enough money that it's a third degree criminal destruction charge and he's going to go to court for this and the judge is going to look at it and say you freaked out at work you got angry so you kicked this elevator door in you need to go to anger management counseling and this often does happen where judges recognize there might be other factors in play that a normal person without anger issues doesn't just go kick in an elevator door so instead of just sending everybody to the recommended prison time or whatever it might be, judges have leniency in some cases to suspend prison sentences or jail time or whatever it might be in lieu of somebody completing anger management or in cases of domestic assault, domestic abuse counseling. If they attend these counseling sessions and actively participate, and are advised by the counselor at the end that the person has participated, then oftentimes, especially on first offenses, there's little to no additional punishment other than potentially some fines or maybe community service. As part of the court proceedings, he was ordered to meet with a court-appointed psychiatrist for an evaluation. He was diagnosed with paranoia and delusional tendencies, but deemed not to be a threat to others. Most of his paranoia came from voices in his head and a black shadow that followed him. He believed his house was bugged with listening devices and that his co-workers were plotting against him. But Byron made no apparent direct threats to others during this evaluation. And we see this, we've talked about this in the past. In America, you're allowed to be as crazy as you want to be. And I don't like using that term crazy, but at the same time, I think it's making too much light of mental illness if I throw that you're allowed to be as mentally ill as you want to be. So basically, you're allowed to be delusional. You're allowed to have these feelings of a spirit haunting you or people out to get your house being bugged. You can put tinfoil over all your windows. You can wear a tinfoil hat when you're out in public. There's nothing illegal about being mentally ill or having these delusions or whatever it might be. As long as a psychiatrist or somebody has looked at this, especially when a crime is involved, and said that they are, this person is not a threat to others. Now, if he's in there talking about his house is bugged with listening devices, so he's gonna go break into other people's houses. If he's talking about this black shadow following him, so the next time he sees somebody in a black trench coat, he's gonna shoot them. If he's making direct threats to react with violence to what he's facing, then it's a different situation. But again, you're allowed to have a mental illness. You're allowed to not even be treated for that mental illness unless that mental illness is, is a direct threat to others. Byron told his brother in 1993 that the shadow followed him and pinned him to the ground. So the family went as far as to have their house blessed by a religious man in an attempt to rid it of the evil spirit Byron claimed was haunting him. While the priest did perform the ritual, he later told police that he felt Byron was suffering from mental illness and the shadow had nothing to do with religion. And we see this in a lot of cases. This was not a Christian religion this was not a catholic priest it was a, a different type of priest i can't remember which religion exactly it was but we do see this from time to time deeply religious families when somebody suffers from mental illness or 
violence or whatever their family is facing will turn to religion and look for either answers or solutions via religion. And these religious leaders, of course, do want to help the families out. That's that's a big part of religion is helping people. However, in a lot of cases, they, they probably recognize that this has more to do with an individual's mental health than it does to do with religion. And and there will be some that will argue that there's it's a fine line to draw between somebody believing in a higher power and somebody believing in a, an evil spirit following them. And I think that's why religious leaders do try to help out in these situations. But ultimately, even though the family is ma- making this effort to try to get rid of this evil spirit or this shadow, they probably they had to have known as well that this was more of a mental health issue. And in the years after the elevator incident, coworkers stated that Byron made references to carrying out workplace shootings and often left threatening notes around the workplace to include death threats. This prompted the company to bring in a crisis management team in 1996, but nothing was reported about the team's prognosis of the situation. And this is difficult as a, as a company. You're walking a very fine line. You're required to provide a safe workplace, a safe environment, but you're also have to be careful when it comes to mental health and I used to take a lot of phone reports from people when I was a police officer that involved people making death threats and it got worse the bigger social media got with Facebook and everything and I would get calls because man and woman they get divorced and the new girlfriend of the now ex-husband is calling to report that his ex-wife is making death threats against her and I'd ask them to send me the the copies of the de- these death threats on Facebook or text message wherever it might be coming through and the death threats would be something the effect of you need to watch what you say or something along those lines and it's I said well it's not really a death threat that's just them saying you need to watch what you say and then the reporting party would often be like yeah well I know what that means it means that if I don't watch what I say, then she's going to kill me. It's like, well, you're jumping to that conclusion. It's not a conclusion I can make. There's no evidence there that she's directly threatening your life. So oftentimes people do get you know, a note left behind that says something that they perceive as a threat, when in reality, from a legal standpoint, it's there's no threat there. So while the articles would report that he had death threats, there was nothing at least in terms of specifics about what these threats said or what he specifically said to other people that would indicate this. So if so much of this is vague and gray area, all the company can do is bring in this crisis management team and it's more of a CYA at that point, cover your own butt, to say, hey, we recognize there's an issue, but it didn't arise to the level of us terminating this guy, but we just wanted to try to figure out a way to work through this. And so again, we don't know exactly what was said in these threats, and we don't know what this crisis management team did, but we, what we do know is that Byron's anger towards his coworkers and the company grew in intensity in 1999, as the company replaced an older style of copier with a new one that Byron was unfamiliar with, and he would need extensive training to be able to service it. Fearing he would not be able to learn the workings of the new machine, Byron delayed the training as long as he could, and on November 1st, 1999, a supervisor informed him that he would start his training the next day. And I do find this interesting, the timing of it in terms of this new machine. This is the 
obviously the extreme late 90s and there's two things that are going on now is is the internet is becoming a much more mainstream especially in, in business and education a lot more people are using high-speed internet at this point and so these copier machines that he'd been working on since the 1980s likely were getting upgrades and updates to the point that they were able to communicate so no longer did you just have to understand how the copier functioned in terms of the mechanics of it there's a whole nother aspect of network management and and communication that existed in these copiers they, back in the 80s these copiers would be standalone you know you might have a copier fax combination that worked on a phone line but the difference between a copier and say 1984 and 1999 are, are going to be huge the other thing is this is right before y2k which if you're not familiar with that that was a bug where everybody thought the computers would freak out because when computers were designed a lot of the dates were designed with two digits the last two so 1989 became 89 1999 became 99 well when it got to 2000 the obviously the last two digits of that would be zero zero well we all know that 2000 came after 1999 but people worried that computers would freak out because they would see anything that occurred at 99 as occurring after zero zero and so they thought there's going to be these worldwide crashes of, of computers and computer systems and a lot of computer systems did have to be patched or fixed up in some way so that there wasn't an issue but i can only imagine that these copier machines with all that's going on with the y2k and the internet are going to be much more complex have much more complex issues than what byron dealt with when he first started working for xerox and Byron, as I mentioned, had an, or an affinity for guns and an extensive gun collection. And his house had about 25 guns, which included rifles, shotguns, and handguns. And on the morning of November 2nd, 1999, he grabbed a Glock 9mm handgun and a loaded spare magazine from his collection and brought it to work with him. He entered the building around 8.10 a.m. and headed to the second floor where his work group would gather in the morning. He opened fire on his supervisor and several members of his work group. He fired a total of 28 shots, requiring a reload at some point, and continued to shoot at employees as he left the building. By the time he left the building, he had killed seven people. Those who lost their lives that day were 58-year-old Melvin Lee, 54-year-old Ron Kawame, 50-year-old Ron Katoka, 46-year-old Peter Mark, 41-year-old Ford Kanahira, 36-year-old John Sakamoto, and 33-year-old Jason Balatico. Four of the men slain were part of the seven-employee workgroup that Byron was part of, and one of the victims was a supervisor that had ordered him to attend the new machine training that day. And from what I understood, it wasn't very often that his workgroup would actually be together. And this is likely because they were service technicians, so I think a lot of their time was spent going out to locations where these Xerox copiers were and repairing them on site. And so it wasn't that common that all of them would be just sitting around. And I think because of this training that on this new system, he had been advised that a lot of people were going to be in the office that morning to, to, I don't know if it was to help him with the training or if they were going to be receiving the training as well. It sounded like most of them had already because he was the lone holdout, but maybe it was something where 
you know, they thought if they could get the whole work group together and work with him, they could get through it. But it, it was I just read somewhere that this was a unique situation and it's possible that Byron knew that and took advantage of it where he could cause the maximum amount of damage to the people that he felt were against him. And Byron fled the building in a green Xerox work truck. And it said that as he left the building, he just kind of walked casually out, got into this work truck and drove. I guess some people, as people were kind of running out of the building screaming, of course, because this active shooting is going on, he's just walking out of the building casually, gets into this truck and drives off as if nothing happened. But this work truck was located by a jogger while it was parked outside the Makiki Nature Center in the mountains north of the city. Police set up a perimeter and evacuated homeowners before engaging in a five-hour standoff with the murder suspect. 35 school children were on a field trip to the Nature Center and had to shelter in place for the duration of the standoff. That's because if I looked at a map of this area, you drive through this really nice neighborhood and it's a dead-end street that ends at this hiking path into this nature preserve and then there's this nature center and he's parked at the end of this dead end so there's really no way because it's just pure mountains behind this nature center there's really no way for police to get in and evacuate this nature center that has these 35 school children and so unfortunately these kids had to shelter in place for this five hours while police negotiated and eventually they used byron's brother dennis during their negotiations brought him in to convince byron to surrender and he did so without incident news of the massacre spread quickly throughout the island state hawaii is known for its low crime rate and extremely low murder rate homicides are rare and a mass shooting like this had not occurred in the 40 years since it became a state and thankfully has not occurred in the 24 years since this deadly day as I was researching this case, I was actually looking because obviously Hawaii has been in the news recently for these terrible wildfires and they're in the news whenever there's something like a tsunami or a volcano erupting or, or some type of usually a natural disaster of some sort, but they're almost never in the news for anything crime related. And so I went to look at a list of mass shootings in the United States in the last, you know, since, basically since 2000. And I think it was Hawaii and North Dakota were the only two states, and I think that went back to like 2012, I think it was only the last 10 years, but it was something about in the last 10 to 20 years, the only two states to not have a mass shooting incident were Hawaii and North Dakota. So again, and we've talked about North Dakota in our flyover state episodes, extremely low crime rate, low population density. Now the population density in parts of Hawaii is a lot more, but whether it's isolation, weather, whatever you want to say, more laid back atmosphere, it's it's just known for being this low crime state. So this is this was definitely a shocking day for the entire state of Hawaii. And blame for the massacre was quickly placed on both Byron and the Xerox Corporation. Reporters looked into Byron's past and spoke with family members who stated Byron had issues with anger management since his car accident in the late 70s. He was quick to assume any issue with a copier machine was sabotaged by a co-worker, so doing his job made him actively angry. So this was part of his delusions where whenever a copier broke down, it was the fault of, of somebody. It, it couldn't just be that the, the copier broke. It couldn't just be that a, a part in the in the copier gave out or 
some type of a mechanical failure, a jam, caused damage, whatever it might be. He always felt that him having to do his job was based on somebody else purposely breaking something. And, and again, that goes back to the difficult co-worker, the everything is wrong with the world, everything's out to get this person in the world type of attitude that you know, some people love their jobs, some people tolerate their jobs, and some people hate their jobs. And when you have somebody that hates their job and doesn't want to actually do work, and then they have these delusions about people making them work by, by sabotaging these machines. It just he's, he's actively angry by going to work and having to do his job. And what was shocking was, to me at least, was it only took six months for Byron's murder trial to start in Honolulu. And I'm used to researching these trials, and it's two, three, four years and, or more, sometimes after the crime is committed, that the trial begins so i don't know if this is if it was a request for a speedy trial on byron's part or whether they just there was such public outcry that they wanted to get this trial underway as quickly as possible but the six months between the shooting and the, and the trial is one of the fastest i've researched so far and the month-long trial would not be based on whether or not Brian committed the murders, but rather whether he could be held accountable due to his mental illness. And Brian's lawyers were seeking a not guilty by reason of insanity adjudication as they claimed he was temporarily insane when he committed the seven murders. So again, this is... We've seen these cases a few times before. It's not going to be whodunit. It's not going to be prove the, the person sitting in the courtroom did this or didn't do this it's not a scott peterson case or anything along those lines we're not the person's not on trial to see whether or not they committed the crime they're on trial to see whether or not they can be held accountable for their actions that day because of their mental uh, health issues and the prosecution originally charged byron with one count of first degree premeditated murder and seven counts of murder in the second degree and one charge of attempted murder for a co-worker he shot at but missed so I can only think that his main beef was with the supervisor that was going to make him do this copier training the next day. So they must have assumed that he sought out the supervisor to kill. And at first they were just going to say, okay, well, he was the only one that Byron really meant to go kill. These other people were just unfortunate bystanders for that are that are caught up in his rage. So we're only going to go second degree murder on each of those. And this is something that prosecutors do from time to time because the worry is that you're going to overcharge. And by that I mean if you go into one of these situations and say, okay, this is seven counts of premeditated murder, the jury can look at it and the defense has a chance to say they can't prove that he went to work that day intending to kill B, C, D, E, F, G victims. Only victim A did he intend to kill. So you have to acquit him of the first degree murder of all these other people. So a lot of the times prosecutors will go for the charge they know they can get, and in this case it was the first degree premeditated murder of the supervisor, and then make sure they don't overcharge the other counts. But during the trial it was decided that Byron would be eligible to be charged with seven counts of first degree murder, so the jury was instructed they had the option of convicting him on those counts as well. As is always the case in insanity-based defenses, the defense had the burden of proving Byron did not know right from wrong when he carried out the murders. 
It's not enough to point out the actions of the accused and state their actions alone indicate they were insane. It has to be proven that the accused was so insane they didn't know what they're actually doing was wrong. And this is where a lot of people get tripped up on insanity-based offenses. They think when somebody commits an act, whether it be something like this, a mass shooting at a workplace, or even some of the depraved acts that people do, dismembering bodies after they've killed somebody, whatever it might be, a sane person will look at those actions and say, there's no way that person was in their right mind when they're doing what they're doing. And I don't disagree that that person wasn't in their right mind, but the insanity defense is based off you knowing whether what you're doing is right or wrong. And in the case of dismemberment, it's not a right or wrong thing. It's that people often do that as a way to get further their crime to get away with it. And so it's, it's not that the, even though the action seems insane, there's a purpose behind it and they understand that purpose and, and they understand that what they're doing is wrong. And during the trial, the defense had two expert witnesses testify that Byron was insane at the time of the shootings because he was having delusions from reality and felt his co-workers were mutilating his prized fish. The prosecution expert admitted Byron suffered from schizophrenia with delusions, but stated that Byron's attempts to conceal his crime before he carried it out shows that he knew what he was doing was wrong. And this is always the big test. Again, just because you're struggling with what reality is does not mean you don't understand right from wrong. It's not as if Byron woke up that day and this black claims this black shadow told him to kill all these people and he walked into the building with the gun out, shot seven people and then just waited for the police to show up and told the police, there I did your job for you. These people were evil and I cleansed the world from them. If, if he truly thought what he was doing was right and acted that way, then that's where the insanity defense can come in and say he didn't actually intend to, to commit crimes, he thought what he was doing was right. In this case, there's no proof of that. He, he conceals the weapon to get into the building. He isolates his supervisor, shoots him, shoots and kills six other people, walks out of the building, drives away, and then engages in this five-hour standoff. His actions indicate he knows what he did wasn't right, and so this, this is where the insanity defense, I think, is going to fall short for him. And the defense also tried to argue that the head injury Byron sustained during the car accident in 1977 played a major role in his ability to control his behavior. Dennis, who was Byron's brother, stated that Byron had been at a graduation party and while driving home he crashed head-on into a telephone pole. Dennis declined to admit if Byron had been drinking before the accident, but Byron did have a rest for DWI on his driving record. Dennis stated the family took Brian to a plastic surgeon to stitch up some serious head injuries and when they went to look at the car the next day, they said Brian's head had impacted the windshield and there was still hair embedded in the broken glass. And we do see these accidents, especially if somebody's not wearing their seatbelt. Uh, when you run head-on into something with a car, your body wants to keep going at the same speed it was going before. It has all to do with physics. It's way above my head. But uh, basically, the seatbelt is there to keep you strapped into that car because that car can take the impact at 60 miles an hour, your body cannot take hitting something at 60 miles an hour. So as long as you stay strapped into that seat, you should be fine. But if you're not wearing your seatbelt, like it appears Byron wasn't, your head going forward, your body being thrown forward at say 60 miles an hour from 
from 60 miles an hour to a dead stop into the windshield is going to cause some serious injuries. And no information is known whether Byron sought any medical attention, but brain injuries are classified by both primary and secondary. Primary brain injuries occur at the time of impact and reach maximum severity in the moments after injury. Secondary injuries occur as a result of damaged tissue at the site of the injury, and that tissue can get worse over time if not treated quickly after the impact. So this is, to me, it's kind of the difference between, say, a small cut on your wrist and some type of a deep bruise or a sprained ankle. One is going to be kind of an immediate injury and then it's going to start to heal and there's not going to be any really long-term effects, whereas the other one requires treatment or it's potential that it's only going to get worse over time. And secondary brain injuries often result in impaired behavior, decision-making, and difficult social, difficulty socializing with others. And while Brian displayed all the classic symptoms of an undiagnosed and untreated secondary brain injury, not all people who sustain this type of injury end up becoming aggressive or violent. So it's one of those things we've talked about many times. You can have somebody who does all of the parts of the McDonald Triangle. They have people that witness trauma growing up. You have people that sustain head injuries. So you can have somebody that basically checks all the boxes of a potential future serial killer, spree killer, mass killer, whatever it might be, and that person is your normal, can hold down a job, doesn't ever harm anybody their entire life type of person. And you can have somebody that has never had a head injury, didn't witness any trauma growing up, never had any parts of the McDonald Triangle, and they can still kill somebody. So just because you have this this head injury and, and classic signs of a secondary brain injury doesn't mean that you're going to become a killer. It just means that you've got a higher propensity for it. And a lot of the issues that Byron dealt with most through most of the 80s and 90s appear to be issues that could be associated with that secondary brain injury. And the prosecution contended that Byron actively chose to commit the murders because he was upset about the change of copier machines and worried he was going to lose his job. While they contended his mental illness may have played a role in his decision making, he did not meet the court required definition of insane at the time he committed the murders. And there was something in there about the, the most telling thing was he told a friend or family member something about this copier machine and how he feared that he was going to get fired. So he told them before he went off to do the shooting that he was going to do something that they would have to fire him for. And again, that alone tells everybody that he knows what he's doing is wrong. There's going to be a consequence to his action. He's going to get fired for going in and shooting a bunch of people because he knows it's the wrong thing to do. He has no delusions of grandeur that this is the right thing to do and this is going to make everything okay in the world. So just by his own statements alone he basically blew this insanity defense possibility out before he even committed the crimes and the jury agreed with the prosecution and on june 13 2000 after only two hours of deliberation they found byron guilty of all seven murders in the first degree and the one count of attempted murder at his sentencing on august 8 2000 the judge sentenced him to life without the possibility of parole Technically, his sentence is 235 years in prison, which is the longest sentence in Hawaii's criminal legal history. Byron and his lawyers appealed the sentence immediately after his trial, but it was upheld in 2002 by the state of Hawaii Supreme Court. 
Several of the massacre's victims' families filed lawsuits against Byron and the company in the years following the shooting, claiming Xerox knew about Byron's anger issues towards his co-workers and his death threats and mentions of workplace violence, yet they did not do enough to prevent it. These lawsuits would eventually extend to include any medical facilities and staff that attended to Byron and failed to properly assess his level of danger and or treat him for his anger and mental health. The lawsuits against Xerox were first tossed out in 2003 because a judge ruled the incident was workplace violence and is covered under workers' compensation claims, and that the company was not liable via civil court, but later these lawsuits returned to the civil courts and were settled out of court for an undisclosed amount of money. And Byron remains incarcerated at a maximum security prison in Arizona. The Xerox warehouse where the massacre occurred was vacated by the company after the shooting. They moved to a new location and never conduct operations out of the building again. Abandoned warehouses make great shooting locations for movies and television, and the very popular NBC show Lost used the site of the massacre as a set location for the show. This led to rumors of some actors turning down roles on the show due to the morbid location. Other rumors were spread that cast members and crew reported haunting experiences while working in the building. Local native Hawaiians claim the ghosts are spirits that cause accidents because the building has not been blessed after the tragedy as required by local customs and traditions. According to some members of the cast and crew, a blessing was performed to ward off the evil spirits during the usage of the building. Many who live in Hawaii during the crime remember the day when the violence and carnage of mainland U.S. visited their tropical paradise. With volcanoes, tsunamis, and the terrible recent wildfires capable of wrecking havoc on the island state, Hawaii can hopefully avoid any more terrible human-caused tragedies like the Xerox Massacre. But that is the story of the Xerox Massacre. Thank you guys for listening. Stay tuned for future episodes, and feel free to write me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions at gmail.com. You can also find me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions on Facebook, and support me via Patreon at TrueBlueCrimeProductions. That's it for today, guys. Thanks for listening. Talk to you later. Goodbye.